Greetings, outcasts, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full length, early and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash the melt podcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show. This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. The largest MK Ultra research project, this one directly related to brainwashing, was carried out at the university's psychiatric hospital, the Allen Memorial Institute. Located atop Mount Royal in a mansion with the eerie name of Ravenscrag, the Allen Memorial was once the most prestigious mental hospital in Canada. The unorthodox treatments of its director caught the attention of the CIA in the mid-50s. Dr. Ewan Cameron, the first director of the Allen Memorial, ran the institute with an iron hand for 20 years. But Dr. Cameron remained an American citizen and left the Allen abruptly in 1964. He returned to the United States, where he died in 1967. An energetic, enigmatic man, Cameron was an internationally honored and respected psychiatrist, but he was not universally liked. Former colleague, Dr. Elliot Emanuel. He was uh, an authoritarian, ruthless, power-hungry, nervous, tense, angry man. Not very nice. Much of Cameron's research went on in the stables next to the main hospital building. Here he had his subjects photographed before and after treatment. Dr. Cameron may not have known that the $60,000 research grant he received from the Human Ecology Fund really came from the CIA. Rudolf Hess. Nonetheless, it now seems ironic to some that Cameron was called to the Nuremberg trials to examine Rudolf Hess. For it was at Nuremberg, after Nazi doctors who experimented on prisoners of war were condemned, that a code of scientific ethics was adopted. 
research must be completely safe and research subjects must give full voluntary consent. Documents recently released by the CIA reveal what research Cameron proposed. To make patients receptive to repetitive messages, Cameron suggested using chemical agents to break down ongoing patterns of behavior, chemical agents like LSD. LSD was almost unknown in the late 50s and not yet widely tested. Despite the horrible hallucinations small doses can produce, Dr. Cameron left some of his patients to unsupervised LSD trips. In 1956, Bob Logie was 18 years old when his severe leg pains were diagnosed as psychosomatic and he was sent to the Allen Memorial Institute. When Bob heard the news reports of CIA-funded research at the Allen, he sent for his medical records. They revealed several doses of LSD. Today, Bob Logie lives and works in Vancouver, but he's still angry. I feel like I've been completely used. I feel like my mind has been completely invaded. I suppose uh, if guinea pigs have feelings, they'd feel like I do. LSD trips were terrifying to patients who had never heard of LSD and who had no way of knowing why their world was suddenly upside down. Hallucinations last for hours. Experts say this is what an acid trip would look like if it could be filmed. The uh, LSD was uh, really horrifying, very horrifying, and uh, they gave it to me for about 12 or 15 times. One minute I would see the doctor there, the next minute I wouldn't see him there, and uh, they were asking me all kinds of questions, and uh, I remember them telling me that I was getting smaller and smaller, and I really felt myself getting smaller. And uh, they were bringing me back in time, way back, you know. At one point I almost felt like I was just about to be uh, born, <laughs> really, that far back in memory, and uh, they were really, really probing uh, asking all kinds of questions, and uh, I felt I didn't have any control. I had to answer. I didn't feel I had any control. I was completely, uh, like they had complete control over me. That was an excerpt from a 1980 episode of Canada's premier documentary program, The Fifth Estate, which was covering the MKUltra mind control program being run out of Montreal starting in the 50s by Dr. Ewan Cameron. It involved drug-induced sleep, sometimes for weeks at a time, electroconvulsive therapy, sensory deprivation, injections of LSD, and the administration of large amounts of Thorazine. His practices included the torture and abuse of large groups of children, which left them psychologically damaged for life. Dr. Cameron's research and experiments caught the attention of the CIA, and they began to fund him through a front organization called, get this, the Society for the Investigation for Human Ecology. All of these experiments were done without the patient's consent, and Cameron's research was funneled into the MKUltra program where people had their psyches fragmented so that they could be utilized by the state and the CIA to do their bidding. 
One of these children involved in Dr. Cameron's research was today's guest, Ann Diamond. She's here today to talk about her experiences in the program, the history of the program, and how it may have had something to do with her having Canadian folk singer Leonard Cohen call her into his circle. I start off the conversation by asking Anne what it was that caused her to suspect that she had been a part of that program. Um, it started when I was 50. Uh, until then, I think maybe I'd heard the term MKUltra, but I had never, you know, I didn't know much about it. But um, suddenly I found myself um, unemployed with, <laughs> uh, with, um, 24 7 internet so i could just read all day and all night sometimes and i it was a coincidental thing that really happened i i um i decided i wanted to look into my family history and especially what happened to my father in 1962 when he was put in the allen memorial in montreal and it was you know, quite traumatic for our family. But so in 2003, 2002, yeah, something like 2003, around then, 2002, 2003, I had time and I thought, oh, I'll write a, I'll write a memoir about my dad and, you know, and our family. And, and I started um, on a completely different tack. I had become very interested in Dr. Mengele. I'd been to, I'd traveled to Auschwitz uh, that summer, and I'd, and um, I suddenly became curious about the about um, whether whether there were records of Mangala or whether uh, working for the CIA. Mm-hmm. So that's that was my first Google search, mm-hmm. and where it took me, the very first at the very top of my of the search, you know, list. What do you mm-hmm. call that? Um, that uh, I got for some. I, it said Dr. Mangala. Allen Memorial, Montreal, 1962. Wow. It just said that. So I went, oh, Allen Memorial. My dad was in the Allen Memorial, Dr. Cameron, 1962. How can these two things be connected? And Mengele and uh, and that, my family. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of, of several months of research. And then I just read everything that there was that I could find on MKUltra and very, it took me a year before I was ready to even entertain the thought that I had been involved in it as a child. But the more I learned and the more people I talked to and yeah, I began to see that my whole family had been involved in it. And what, what did you, what was your, your father hospitalized for? Well, this was the, that was the question, you know, uh, he was not, um, he was a, he was a high school music teacher uh-huh. and he had just put together the uh, Christmas concert at the high school. And he was kind of, you know, uh, he was, he had just turned 60. Um, and um, I was 12, right? My brother, my twin brother and I were 12. And all of a sudden, um, I think he, I think what may have precipitated it was an argument or a fight with my mother something was going on and all of a sudden our dad did not come home he he was he was in the hospital and um you know it was mysterious of course we weren't being told everything because our parents you know we don't they didn't tell us things but um possibly we thought a nervous breakdown uh i'm not so sure i think um 
when you go when I checked in and learned more about my father, got his military records, got uh, learned more and more about him, I realized he was Air Force intelligence, and there and so was Dr. Cameron uh-huh. of the Allen Memorial. So they were so Dr. Cameron, who came from around here, you know, who was living down here where I am now, in Lake near Lake Placid, mm-hmm. um, was I maybe in some ways my father's superior, you know, but he would have been. RAF or and um, my dad was Royal Canadian Air Force and the wartime my father had been in the signals corps and I mean that was that had that played a part in this whole thing um, so I mean I'm sorry you don't have a short answer no that. God no but no he was, but he was not a mental patient he had no diagnosis and even his medical records showed no uh, di- diagnosis of mental illness. What they found were um, mini strokes, ischemic, uh, what do they call those? Uh, at- attacks, you know, what mm-hmm. do they call it? MIAs. Yeah. Yeah. So he went in, he, he, they told you that he was in for a nervous breakdown or you think that's just a, an excuse? Implied it. Yeah, you know, an implied, but um I've been sort of told that it was more than that. There was something going on at work. It involved, there were people at work, uh, other teachers who were involved in the MK Ultra program because the whole school board that he was part of, that he worked for, I have been, uh, I know from research, was collaborating with McGill and sending children, you know, teen- teenagers who had problems disruptive kids and so on they were sending them to dr cameron to be fixed fixed yeah Yeah, that's creepy and yeah and uh guidance counselors and so on would feed the kids but i mean i i have a sense my dad you know had a a little bit of a paranoid streak but it was more (laughs) like a a scottish you know kind of presbyterian attitude you know he was mistrustful in some ways of people based on life experience yeah, and yeah. I, I have a feeling that there was something happened at work that was political in nature mm-hmm. and that that contributed to so was he any was he did he behave differently when he got back did he say anything about his visit yeah yeah he said he he came back he was he didn't recognize us wow that was after six weeks wow in the hospital we visited him one time and that, and he was just very passive and very weak. And, you know, I mean, um, then after six weeks, they sent him home and he didn't seem to know who we were. And then wow. he went to bed. And, um, and the following Monday, <laughs> I'll just say, he got up and went to work or got dressed, went out the door with his briefcase back to school. But I have recently, only recently, I was believed that, that he, managed to go back to teaching but in fact no he was going down to the hospital he was a day patient of dr cameron oh. and he was, the treatments were continuing as an outpatient but my parents were pretending that they didn't want my brother and i to know that our dad was so badly you know sure damaged mm-hmm. basically and that he was his career was finished so he he took early retirement a few months later but um you know, I, I've only recently, I found the, the yearbook and realized that it says he's gone. He left the, you know, in December and never came back. Wow. And so what he said, he was very passive. He, uh, afterwards, he had been kind of difficult and uh, tended to get angry easily. That was possibly mm-hmm. part of the, you know, the, the problem. Sure. But 
um, he wasn't violent or, you know, he was just a little bit, uh, what's the word? He was, he was crusty, you know, he was, um, but uh, when he came back, he was, he was vague and, you know, and, and he, we would play board games with him and he would try to be nice, but um, it's almost like he was learning to be himself again. Yeah. And one time I remember uh, he said to me, you know, they're not doing anything good down at that hospital. Wow. He said that, you know. But um, I said, Dad, you know, they're just psychiatrists trying to help people. He said, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he, oh. he knew, he, you know, he was, I think, he, you know, six weeks wasn't enough to completely to reduce him to vegetable status. Sure. So do you think So that... he recovered, you know. Uh-huh. So there was maybe some electric shock therapy going on or? In LSD, I'm, I'm sure of the LSD and I'm sure of, it's not in his records because they sanitized the records. I wasn't able to get the, the records of the of the treatment he got from Dr. Cameron, but um, I, no doubt in my mind, he was electroshocked and um, and the LSD I know about because he was, he started bringing it home and we were taking it too. So after he brought it home, you took it. Well, actually, he was going down to the hospital as a patient, and we didn't huh. know. I mean, I didn't know, and and it was coming home at night, and he came back uh-huh. uh, with um, a tonic that we were supposed to take at bedtime, and I we would take this. It was called Wampoles, but there was something in that tonic because both my brother and I. I mean, later we talked about meant much later, um, we would start to experience LSD like, um, you know, getting off on LSD. We have distortions of time and space and and everything, you know, it goes crazy. And I was 12. I would get up in the morning and go go to school, but but often at night I I would be hallucinating. And I heard a message playing in my head that is this one of the messages that was on, you know, Dr. Cameron's famous depatterning tapes, the recordings. Uh would give people, uh, you know, instructions and so on, you know, judgments and so mm-hmm. on. So I would hear hundreds of times in my bed at night, uh, you're no good. A man's voice was talking to me. You're no good. You will fail. You will never succeed at anything. I heard wow. that hundreds of times. Wow. And um, where did that come from? I think it came from the pillows that he also brought home, which were foam rubber. And he said, these are better pillows. Now you'll use these pillows. And so we had these new foam rubber pillows. I suspect there was a speaker in the pillow playing the recording. So yeah, our whole family was pulled into this thing. Uh, Including your mom, did she? I think so, but you know, she never, yeah, I, I, she got very ill after she, she developed a lot of, um, arthritis and couldn't, and essentially, essentially became an invalid very quickly. Mm. So it's a disaster, the whole thing. Yeah, that's very, very intense. And was it around this time that you recalled at 50 years old, around the time that you started going to this hospital too, or was that some time after that? So, um, okay, at 50, I was living in British Columbia, and mm-hmm. I started looking back yeah. at this strange time in our family, which had been 40 years earlier. And my parents had, in the meantime, they died. There was no one to ask. And I thought I was going to write about it. Mm-hmm. So I hope this is, I hope this is somehow making sense. You know, these switches and sure. uh, 
traveling in time a bit, but yeah, yeah. but it was in 2003. I was out. I was out west. I had unemployment insurance, meaning I had six months. It was like a little writing grant, and I had the internet, and I could you know study and read and do all these things. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to write about my family now and what happened to us, whatever mm -hmm. that was. And that's when the research started, and the research just went on and on and on. And uh, and I started. I wrote a book in the end. I wrote a memoir called My Cold War. Yeah, that I that uh, <laughs> was a bit, which I couldn't find a publisher for, but I self-published. Oh, good. And was it received? Did did a lot of people show interest in it? Um, publishers slammed doors in my face and <laughs> in my face and took and took me off their mailing lists. And my people that I had a track record with, like publishing, I'd written, um, you know, I'd written poetry, fiction, and that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, I came out with this manuscript and the, the reaction was instantaneous, automatic, you know, you know, and um, I think because I was not the first person to come forward with a story like this and they were, and they had instructions in Canada not to ever touch uh, this, uh, you know, this history. It's, it's basically hidden history in yeah. Canada still even though it's kind of, it came out via the United States, really. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't know about it if, if uh, American media hadn't picked up on it. Yeah. You, you alluded to a, a radio, a radio station that did sort of a, a multi-part series on it. And I went and found oh, it yeah. on the internet archive and I'm going to play some of that before this episode when I finally put it together, but it was pretty extensive. Okay. Yeah. It was. No, that's true. I'm, um, yeah, in 1998, uh, that was uh, Ryerson University, I think, the mm -hmm. student radio station, CKLN. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Uh -huh. Yeah, in 1998, they did do um, uh, a whole series, and they had all kinds of people like Colin Ross and Claudia Mullen, all the all this, uh, you know, survivors, therapists, and it's a great series. Um, but, you know, the, the, the events were back in the 60s, and um, the children, the story of the children of the Allen Memorial is told on by CKLN, by some of the therapists, I think, talking. Uh, but um, the, it's basically taboo to talk about that in Canada, talk about the children. You can talk about the patients who, you know, adults who were reduced to vegetable, like, you know, condition, but you cannot say there were children. Yeah. It's just starting now to come out. And was it, so was it during the research for that book that sort of memories started surfacing? I had always had some memories. Yeah, I had always had memories. I had had memories from the age of four. I tried to tell my mother uh, when I was four or five, I said, you know, I, I went to a, this place and they were torturing children and they were tied to an assembly line belt and there were witches and clown, there were witches with long pointy sticks. And I tried to tell my mother, um, that is, uh, and I wrote, and then I, you know, I later in about in the, in the 1980s, I wrote a short story about that because at that time in the 1980s, I thought I just had a wild imagination as a yeah. child with a tendency, you know, to imagine uh, sadomasochistic, <laughs> you know, torture and things yeah. like that. But, but, um, in 2003, I corresponded with, with, uh, a survivor 
who had this an account of exactly the same scenario and she had you know the the witches the long the cattle prods um the children tied to an assembly line sort of like a you know an, an, a belt a luggage belt on like the, a conveyor in belt. an airport yeah. mm. tied down and she had all of that in her description so i wrote to her and she had been in china lake uh in california the that's one of the uh sites the mk ultra sites so it's enormous uh, underground facility and of course these were the doctors dressed as witches so that you could recount that and your your, your parents weren't supposed to believe that right well that's it yeah my yeah. mother just I, I remember very clearly telling her you know there were witches and i she said you had a bad dream you know you had a bad dream she had no idea what was happening, but they were flying me. It seems they were flying me out of Montreal and Air Force planes. And my parents, I, I don't know what they thought, but they were there. They knew, they knew about that. Can you follow all this? It's yeah, surreal. yes, sure. Absolutely. You now it's known, right? It's known about, so I don't sound so crazy. No, not at all. No, it, you know. You're right at home in in this on this podcast because we talk about this stuff a lot. So, yeah, no, it, it's it doesn't sound crazy at all. I mean, it sounds crazy that something like that happened, uh, but your recounting of it does not sound crazy at all. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, do you think that, or do you know that your parents willingly gave maybe these people permission to experiment on you and your brother, or? Um, it was a combination. I think it was essentially blackmail. That's what I've been told. I got my father's military records and I saw the evidence for that. Um, he was uh, threatened with a dishonorable discharge um, because he'd been late returning from leave. And they put him in the brig for two weeks. This was during the war. This is in 1943. And and then that what would happen at that point is they basically own the person they own him they they can threaten him you know he'd never get a job he'd never you know yeah and so i think when the artichoke program started you know which mm -hmm. was before mk ultra yeah i i think he was i i suspect because of certain symptoms he had that he that he um was asked to volunteer for that and then when and then 1950 so that'd be about 1950 1951 my brother and i were born um two years later comes mk ultra 1953 and i think uh, because i've i've compared notes with other survivors it was often a case of the father having uh, being blackmailed by the military you know like carol Ratz, that was the case i think for her father they had to give their children or it's like you know we'll give us your kids or you won't ever work again in this town you yeah know, that sort of thing and of course they probably when they agreed to do that they probably had no idea what they were getting into as far as i know they were told that it was a wonderful opportunity yeah, for their I'm kids sure. it was a gifted children's program yeah and we were special and wonderful things would happen you know if and they believed it yeah why would they not exactly exactly people trusted the military and authority figures back then, <laughs> not so much now, but especially after all this stuff came out. Um, yeah. so what was I going to say after that? Do you what do you think that the that the purpose of this program was? Do you think it was just just 
just experimentation, doing things just to see what would happen? Or do you think that there was an, an intent behind it? Well, I don't know. I got the feeling a, a bit of both, but mm-hmm. they were they were up for anything. And then pl- uh, leaving them with plausible deniability when it was all over, they could say, well, we didn't know what we were doing and it didn't work. Yeah. But I think they were, I think the main purpose, I mean, it, it was a vast program, so it, it's hard to make a judgment, but I would say at McGill, mm-hmm. at McGill University in Montreal, I, th- I think they had a great interest in Manchurian candidate programming. Uh-huh. You know, in creating uh, media people, um, um, politicians, and uh, you know, programmable agents and spies, because I know people that came out of it, and uh, you know, and and the all the publicity goes to the um, all the publicity, all the newspaper coverage and so on, media coverage goes to the patients who were older people who had kids who were put in the hospital and then, you know, and really worked over, I mean, with LSD and so on, and then uh, electroshock and came out, you know, that, that was the depatterning, right? It was supposed to cure schizophrenia. But I think that was really, in, in many ways, it was a cover story for what they were really doing, which was creating schizophrenia, i.e. fragmented personalities who could be programmed. And they weren't really, in, why would they be interested in 50 year olds yeah. You know, who are not, why were they, they, they were interested in the children, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, because they were to be, the children would become assets in the future and they would invest, they were investing money in us, really. Sure, sure. And so that's what, that's my belief, you know, and uh, the idea was a more controllable society, you know, mm-hmm. such as we have now. Yeah, exactly. We've had this discussion, Chris and I have had this discussion, we have kind of this ongoing debate about the counterculture and where the counterculture falls in all of this. Um, When we look at um, people who are extremely famous in the 60s, like um, Jim Morrison, for example, his father was in the military. Uh, There's a lot of people that kind of came up during that time who whose parents had military backgrounds do you think that part of the impetus of the counterculture was to use lsd and psychedelics to um, maybe to some degree create either race wars or riots or uh, just as an overall experiment to um maybe disarm some people who were questioning authority and questioning military and, and uh, the military involvement in Vietnam, for example. Do you think that LSD and these drugs were kind of inserted into the culture and used to do that? Um, well, I tend to be, I'm a sort of more of a middle of the roader on that one. I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert uh, on what I've seen and what I what I've read and what I what I hear. I I think L, number one LSD was invented but came out of Switzerland in 1943, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it was there, and then they started looking right away. They started looking at it as a as some kind of military uh, weapon, mm-hmm. and then I think it it ran away. You know, I think they just 
played their systems theories and their game, you know, and their game theories and so on. They they just let's see what happens. That but let's control the outcome as much as possible too. You know, so I think I think it was a combination. I mean, I don't have um, I'm not anti LSD because I tried it, but mm -hmm. I think I tried it when I was 12 years old, you know, without knowing yeah. I was trying it. And then, and then later I dropped acid when I was 18, a couple mm -hmm. of times. And, and, you know, so I saw everyone around me was, was doing it. Um, it definitely this, you know, I could say the second time I dropped acid, that was an experiment because there were people combing the halls of the university that day, giving out purple tabs, Mm -hmm. And hundreds of people took took it, wow. and um, you know, I, I that was a day in Montreal. I remember very well. And after that, after that, I said, I'm never taking this again. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but a lot of kids end up in, ended up in hospital that day. Wow. And I then had to. I the, I know who gave me that tab of acid, and he is a politician now. Mm. You know, so and with con connections to the military. You know, his brother is in the military, and mm. so. I mean, I look at that's one thing. I mean, I think it was a combination because we took it not for that. We didn't take it because we wanted to be controlled. We <laughs> yeah, took of course. it because we wanted to be free, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And we did learn things from it. I don't know about you, if you, you know, but I, I mean, there were great lessons that came for out sure. of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, that's why it seems like a, you know, you can only control an experiment like that so much. That's why it's almost like a, an experiment in chaos in a sense that, you know, everybody's yeah. going to react to it differently. If you drop, like, I mean, I think Timothy Leary, what concert did he fly over? Monterey or something and dropped acid out of a helicopter. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can control that experiment, but they will get to see a, a lot of different reactions of how people react under the influence of acid. And uh, I'm supposedly, I'm sure there were people there taking notes or documenting it somehow. But yeah, it seems like it could easily get out of hand. Um, do you think that they, they experimented with any other controlled substances with you in the, in the programs? Um. I don't know about me. I mean, you know, I haven't been able to get my records. My, mm -hmm. my, uh, I've seen my psychiatry file and it dates from 1955. So I was four years old. Okay. I went in and called, you know, one day and tried to get my psychiatry file. Well, tried to get, no, tried to get a, my medical file from McGill. I had no idea I had a psychiatry file and they got so, they were so nervous. Um, I had to come back and then they, I ended up seeing the folder, the emptied folder. And it said psychiatry on it. And I really thought I was going in for my pneumonia, you know, my at four year four I had pneumonia, mm -hmm. supposedly. Well, I did. But I think that's uh, the moment when I was put into the experiment, Dr. Cameron's LSD experiment. And in terms of what they, I, I think it was mainly about LSD. I, my only, you know, the only, the, the only memory I have is some is from these LSD like experiences that I had when I was 12. Mm -hmm. um, I know they were giving LSD to children in the, I know Cameron was doing that. I think I was in that. Um, were they giving us things like truth serum? I don't know if that works on kids, you know, but sure. that would be another drug. They, they were testing that on adults for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they were giving, you know, then they had all the psych drugs they were testing, like Largactyl or, you know, chlorpromazine. And uh, I, I don't know how many, how many of those were 
given to kids are under what circumstances, you know. I know sometimes. Probably, yeah, sorry. No, what did you, what was, what was that? Well, what? I'm just thinking that there were children they had in labs who were resident children and they might have given anything to mm -hmm. because they had no parents. They were orphans. Oh, yeah. And so they were basically lab rats. Exactly. But I was always going home. So I was in another category of, uh, ex, you know, child. I would be like a weekend child or something. I wonder if there were more permanent residents there. I guess maybe the ones that didn't have parents. Yes, the orphans and, uh -huh. and the native kids. Yeah, they would they would go to native reserves and just steal children and bring them down to the hospital. That's being investigated right now in Montreal uh, by the Mohawk uh, community, Good. Mohawk mothers. Fantastic. Yeah. Good luck on them finding records of all of that, but a lot of redacting uh, taking place, I would imagine. Um, did you have any, do you recall having any unique abilities? I mean, sometimes when they call kids together for these programs, they stand out for one reason or another. Do you think that that was a case with you, or was it just because your dad made a deal with them to where they were able to blackmail him? No, I think I, think I had genetically like like i had a grandmother who was known for you know for being uh, very psychic second sight you know celtic background there's also some mohawk on my father's side i think um so that you know those are the bloodlines that my mother was oh yeah and my mother on her side was uh french canadian mm. and pure norman bloodlines those are those are they were in demand those bloodlines and it's partly because they're program. They're easy to program. They're th those. You know that. Um, you know about that. The uh, apparently black black people are not programmable. They don't. They cannot be manipulated in the same way that these Irish, you know, like uh, Celtic bloodlines can. But also Native Americans have, um, you know, the ability to time travel or different. They have these special. They say, you know, they often end up, they, they often work for NASA or they, you know, um, because they have cosmic consciousness of, I mean, first, I, you know, you can't really make, um, I, I don't know what these things all mean, really, yeah, sure. but I know um, they, they like the Celts for mm. programming. Interesting. And uh, so I think I had that, I, I can dissociate. I mean, I, I recognize that about myself. <laughs> And, and that was a pain. I'm not affected very much by pain for that's one of my qualities. Mm. And my brother, my twin brother was very musical. So he had kind of special musical talent and, uh, and what my talent, my talent was, I was very, I was quick to learn, you know, I don't know. Anyway. Interesting. And it seems like these programs are drawn to twins too, for whatever reason. Yeah. That's a recurring theme. Well, you know, and, and Mengele, of course, you know, is famous for his mm -hmm. twin experiments. So yeah, that yeah. was, but I, I think it's more than just they can do the comparison, you know, the, they can, but uh, what is it? Twin studies, you know, you have the, you have the comparison yeah. you can mm -hmm. do, but I think it's also that twins, I have been told in certain cultures, twins are selected for shamanic, you know, for their shamanic um, abilities. Hmm. Interesting. They they're tend, you know, tend to be, you know, shamans chosen to be shamans. Do you have something? Okay. Um, so what was McGill? 
was it a university? Was it a medical clinic? What what were they doing there before they were conducting all these experiments? Or did they always, was it always nefarious in this way? McGill uh, is quite a place. Uh, Well, it was, um, I think it was, when did it open? In the early 1800s? Oh, wow. Um, It was, so um, I I can tell you quite a bit about McGill. Do, please do. Uh, as long as I can <laughs> organize my mind around it. First of all, the Scots in Montreal, um, came, fur trading. So there was a lot of money from fur trading, and they and they wanted and they were very, uh, very interested in establishing themselves, uh, you know, in the new colony. So they built institutions, and um, you know, the uh, first thing I guess was a university, churches, you know, and so on, and then a university. So McGill. I guess got a charter charter sometime in the early 1800s. Um, as it uh, evolved, it uh, it became a center for uh, experimental psychology, which was quite rare. It was mm-hmm. it carved out a niche for itself in the early 20th century. So they as a, as a place where you didn't just um, well psychology was a new field, so mm-hmm. it didn't have much status. But and it wasn't scientific enough, so that McGill offered its uh, services as a place of ex- research, which I suspect meant that they they were drawing on humans early on. But you know, um, it was also known for eugenics, and, and that came over from England. I mean, the British were the you know the leaders in eugenics. Yeah, yeah. So um, some some important eugenicists were based at McGill. And they've always they they're known they have been known McGill has always been considered to have a, a great contempt for minorities. They didn't let let Jews in. They didn't let French Canadians. You know they didn't like French Canadians, and um, they were an Anglo institution. Mm-hmm. You know that that looked down on um, the population of Montreal. And it, this is the absolute proof. I mean they used they used unwitting people as guinea pigs. So. That's something to know about McGill. It, sure. It's it's always been a racist, you know. It has a reputation for being racist um, and colonial uh, and military funded, big time. Lots of military funding, and this that's been going on for you know decades and decades. And aren't so, they connected to Tavistock somehow? Yeah, it was in this case. I think uh-huh. there were some of the people from came over from. Tavistock that came to McGill in the 1950s and even maybe the 40s, but um, some of the doctors that worked with Cameron, at least one or two that I can think of were Tavistock people. So they were, I think it was a satellite and the MKUltra program at McGill was really a satellite program of Tavistock. I mean, they were were carrying out the work, but in a, a remote location in a city that didn't have, you know, I don't know the the social networks. Uh, people were on their own. It was it was in some ways you know the frontier. I mean Montreal had a very I had a very um, it, for Canada was very well organized and and very built up and very you know sophisticated. But on the other but by comparison maybe with England they were able to do things to people in Montreal that they couldn't have done back home mm-hmm. or in America. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you say at one, I think of during one of the many interviews that I listened to that during your childhood, at some point there were like a hundred 
unaccounted for days that just it's like of my school year. Yeah. Can you yeah. can you explain that or what what you think might have happened or there's so many things <laughs> like that. Um, um, well, I mean, I got my report card at the end of the year, uh-huh. you know, and I had all like excellence, you know, my teacher said, Oh, look at Anne, she's missed 100 days. And she's still like, really doing very well. And um, I thought I was very happy, you know, to get them my report card, but I had 100, yeah, 100 days absence. It's, a, you know, out of 200. So exactly 100. Wow. And um, that's kind of, you know, what? telling, I think. And um, I was told, and I did, I did spend time at home with various childhood illnesses. But you still, can, I mean, how many times can you have mumps and measles? Yeah, you know, exactly. And so, uh, I my understanding is they were taking me out of school and taking me. I because people then later in life said, "Well, I knew you at McGill when you were a kid." <laughs> I'd go, "I was never at McGill." Like, I had no memory. I had no memory, but I would come back to I would come back to class. I remember coming back in grade three and sort of vomiting <laughs> in the classroom. <laughs> and and in in second grade, that's when I missed a hundred days. And I remember I have you know very scattered memories of that. It's like I wasn't really there. I was really at McGill. <laughs> I was crazy. I was downtown a lot, yeah. Wow. Seems like. It's hard, you know, because it, if I could get those records, but yeah. they won't give me my records. Of course. Is McGill still around today? McGill is still Canada's one of, premier, you know, one of the top universities in Canada Insane. after Toronto, yeah. Insane. Oh, absolutely. It's world class, you know. Yeah. How they have not been shut down at this point is, that's crazy. That's totally nuts. So well, well, what, as I say, in Canada, you can get away with a lot, you know. Yeah, I mean, the last three years have kind of proven that. Yes. Oh, you were talking about COVID. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. Kind of a crazy place to be during COVID. At least that's oh, what yeah. we hear down here. Yeah, I think it was a lot crazier in Canada. People were very regimented in their, you know, seems... I just wonder if if part of the reason that your father had a breakdown was because of what was happening to you and your brother. If maybe on some level, this kind of fragmented part of his brain realized that what was happening was probably wrong. Yeah, I think he had to realize. I think he knew quite a lot. um, And I think he also knew that there wasn't a lot that he could do about it, you know, without getting in a lot of trouble um, at work, for example. And um, uh, I, I, you know, some of the, some of these things I, I speculate a bit, but it seems that I didn't go on in the programming. It seems as though he got us out. My brother, I think, kind of fell out of the program early on, but I was, you know, going, I was going forward in it. And um, I think I think what happened is it's a, to to me was they t- they got me out or they you know they negotiated something I don't know any anyway I was I didn't go on into the full you know treatment that I think happened to other people some of whom I knew later on some people I met later and um, uh, I have complete I mean I have number one I have I have amnesia for the whole thing yeah. but. 
when I was in my 20s, I met people who remembered being in the program and they said they remembered me. Mm. You see, so this is the whole thing. And I would just stare at them. It took me the longest time to to realize, you know, that what I'd been through, I think I was, I think also to realize that I really did get a lot of electroshock and I had, and, and my memory was wiped. Mm-hmm. Um, quite early on you know it's a whole I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get the full story but sure. I can now put pieces together of a whole puzzle you know that um that was my life um that only makes sense yeah if, if I was part of this experiment mm-hmm. yeah and I think my dad I think my dad was quite brave actually in the end I have you know a lot of respect for him because I think he did it at I think he risked himself a lot you know he he took risks and how does your your relationship with your brother play out were you able to talk about these things with your brother only after i wrote my book which was in in 2004 or 5 and i, mm-hmm. I let, and, and my brother read it or at least he read some of it he had a he had a hard time believing it at first and then it took it, it takes time there's a lot of um there's a lot of barriers you have to get over to believing such a thing is even possible. Mm-hmm. And that was the whole point of the program was to make you not believe in it. Yes. Right. And not remember. So um, he slowly began to, to remember things and taught, we talked about things and, and um, the hardest thing for him was to imagine our parents having allowed it to happen mm-hmm. to us. That was very tough for him as it was for me too. Sure. Uh, you know, um he he died in 2012 and uh, you know his health was he was in poor poor health towards the end of his life Mm. Um, and uh he he had a whole he had a whole lsd you know i mean he took a lot of lsd Mm. in this in the 70s you know and Uh, uh, recreationally or through the program yeah recreationally recreationally, but you know you really wonder about the boundary uh, the the borders you know between what is you know yeah. What is your own choice and the people you get involved with uh, and those kind of, and he was a musician and, you know, he oh, hung yeah. out with musicians and yes. did a lot of LSD. Those yeah. bohemians. Yeah. What was I going to say? Oh, uh, whatever happened to you and Cameron? Is he, did he die? He is this, okay. Yeah, I think he was climbing, uh, he was climbing, is it Mount Washington? It's a mountain around here in the Adirondacks somewhere. That's where I am now. And he, he was, he wasn't very old. Yeah. I think he, I think he was 67. Oh, wow. And he died. He, he had a heart attack, hmm. supposedly. Supposedly. Instantly the CIA was at his door uh, after he died and then took all his files. You know, they took all the, all the files away. So I sort of wonder about his death too. Yeah, mm. exactly. Did he, he ever, did he, he ever get. perfect uh, Patsy. I mean, not Patsy. Um, you know, what's that? Uh, Oh, scapegoat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Did he ever get taken to task or anything for it? Did he ever get held accountable? Um, he was in, he left in disgrace. He left Montreal in 1964 in, in disgrace. Um, th- there were, there had been reports and people complaining for, you know, and trying to do something about him for years. And there were demonstrations even. Oh, I've wow. Yeah, but small, you know, uh-huh. people who knew that their family members or, or their friends had gone into the island, you know, with minor neurosis sure. and come out full-blown, you know, psychotic or 
or completely couldn't ever function again. Mm -hmm. And so they, they did they, and it was all hushed up. But um, uh, I think, oh, Kennedy's, kill, Kennedy's assassination seems to have been a turning point. Mm. And you know, there's a story that Lee Harvey Oswald came to Montreal in the summer of 1963. And you know, there's a story that he saw Dr. Cameron, that he was one of the, um, you know, mentoring candidates. Interesting. They, that's, you know, that circulates. Yeah, that would make total sense, actually. I think there's so probably... Then I, have heard, I read an account that after, right within a week after Kennedy's assassination, the CIA were in Cameron's lab Wow. examining everything he was doing and that that's why he was shut down hmm. but you know i can give you the i'm not sure of the reference for that but i it was a book you know mm -hmm. have you read uh chaos by tom o'neill where he talks about jolly west uh, a book called chaos by a, a writer named uh, Tom O'Neill, Thomas O'Neill. And he talks about Jolly West working, I believe, with Cameron. And right after the uh, Oswald assassination, um, he went, West went to see Jack Ruby. And there's accounts yeah. of what happened in that exchange that... Jack Ruby was a Manchurian candidate. So th it seems like they, the tentacles of this are very far reaching and lots of people were involved. I wonder if you, uh, what your relationship with other universities is. Have you heard about other people in other universities? I've heard like Carl Rogers was involved with, uh, who was famous psychologist who started group therapies. Um, right. So, from what I've, the research I've done, the MK Ultra program really targeted universities, hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these institutions where there were large bodies of students coming in and out uh, and using them as experiments and using these departments as experiments, like the anthropology department or the psychology department, sociology departments. What are your thoughts on that? Um. Well, I think that was happening. I don't know how, where, every, I don't know all the places where it was happening, but I know that, you know, there were 149 known sub-projects. Mm. Um, I think a really big center was um, Ithaca, Cornell, mm. you know about that, right? And um, uh, the, what it was, the Institute for Studies in Human Ecology, I forget, I always get the name a bit off, but you know, the Human Ecology Institute, which funded MKUltra, including the, the experiments at McGill in Montreal, that was based at Cornell. It's still there, I don't know. It, it's still, now it's really involved in climate, climate science, you know, but um, I think Ithaca was a big, big center. That's just one that I, I've heard, you know, anecdotally, I've heard about people like Joan Baez's father was there, mm -hmm. a physics professor, mm -hmm. but also a survivor from uh, Northern Ontario who was very, she was very active for a long time. Her name was um, Lynn Sharman, Lynn Moss Sharman, told me she as a child was taken to Ithaca mm -hmm. and was experimented on. And she had, you know, she has drawings and um, she, she had quite detailed memories. She was originally from Ontario, mm. southern Ontario, and father 
was a mace Freemason and mili you know low level military uh, like a, a private or something but ended up putting his daughter in the and the, and she was taken to Ithaca in upstate New York uh, around Lake Erie mm. that area. What are your thoughts about the psychedelic movement now? How Johns Hopkins University is doing experiments and it really seems to be like there is this sudden reawakening of psychedelics and and it's becoming normalized. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I'm not thrilled about that. I mean, I wouldn't advise people. You know, it's, it's too... It, um, my personal feeling is uh watch your step when you get involved with those things you don't know where they lead and you don't you know if you have for example missing time you know yes. you can't recover you don't recover whatever you give give you know give away when you try the, when you try these things you you're you're the last one to know as far as i'm concerned you know about what is really going on i mean they could be microdosing people and helping them with their whatever it is that helps with, you know, ne neurosis, whatever it is, mm -hmm. anxiety and those kinds of things. But what's the ultimate purpose of it all, you know? And, and what are those, I, I don't know. I just don't like to surrender. I don't surrender myself to religions either, you know? So I, I mean, um, I, I, people should really think twice, I think. I do find the timing very interesting when we kind of look at the timeline of all of this happening in relation to COVID. Suddenly there's yeah. all of these experiments happening and it's, it's, they're trying to mainstream psychedelics. It's so benign, you know, so mm -hmm. yeah, I know everyone's compassionate and everything we do is just to help, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm very mis. Well, I've obviously I have every reason to not to be mistrustful. I, sure. I think people should just, yeah. How do you know? I mean, they're experts. They, you know, you have, you don't question experts once you, once you sign your, sign yourself over to those experiments. I mean, you have no idea. Yep. Especially when they're saying, oh, you know, you have to do it in a clinical setting and, it's you, synthesized. you know, it's very, it's very controlled, the setting that they have you in, uh, you know, and, and just that comment you made about the pillow, you know, th that is something that, that it's very possible to pipe in music or subliminal messages into an environment like that. And you would be caught unawares, you know, in that circumstance thinking, okay, well, I've signed this document that says that, uh, you know, everything I do is in confidentiality, but you could also be signing away your freedom and, you know, what's happening, you know, on a subconscious level, who knows, who knows what, what influence that they are trying to, to have. And again, to see what, what happens. Yeah, and they, you know they're using. I know they're using memory erasing drugs now in uh, sur in surgery. Mm -hmm. um, you know, well, I and so it's supposedly you know it, it it's to um, prevent you from experiencing or remembering the trauma. Mm -hmm. Have you know about those? That's I've never becoming heard of them. Common practice. Wow. Yeah, and they did it to my brother before he died. I mean, you know, that's, I have a, my, another little story about that. I don't know what happened, but my, after my brother went in for a, a surgical, you know, minor, it was fairly minor, but they put him, um, 
as, as he was leaving, they put him under, I guess, or they, well, they, they told him as he was leaving that they'd given him a memory erasing drug. Mm. And uh, he said, I didn't give permission for that. And they said, well, this is what we do now, you know, so to uh, erase the, I don't know. Um, he left and within a month he was dead. Now, wow. I don't know. I mean, he had, you know, he had health problems, but basically he stopped eating wow. and he lost interest in life. Is it causally connected? I don't know if it is, but he, you know, I know that he, that's what happened. And it was McGill University that did it, you know, Jeez. their hospital. So McGill, oh, you asked about McGill. The other, the other thing to know about McGill is that it had, it had an, um, a large network of hospitals that all that worked under, you know, it was, uh, yeah, they had uh, hospital clinics and uh, psychiatry and a number of other other and it has its own hospital too but um the royal victoria was the the, the main mcgill hospital but they were they were a network of eight different hospitals in montreal so my brother you know at, in this was way back in the 50s but even you know when my brother went uh for this uh experiment uh, not experimental but was uh investigation you know uh, investigative mm -hmm. kind of treatment whatever what mm -hmm. do you call that um he he went to a McGill hospital right next door to McGill, basically. So who knows? You know they have our records. That you know the, the more they know about us, Obamacare. You know they have, they know everything about you. <laughs> they, it's it's happening everywhere. Um, they they if they decide they want to eliminate you for some reason, they they make you take a vaccine, for instance. <laughs> There's many ways to do it. Exactly. Where uh, may people find you and your work online? Um, you can uh, you could start at andiamond.ca, mm -hmm. um, and I have a I'm I I'm going to be more visible I hope but I think you can find my books just by googling Anne Diamond, um, the man next door that's mm -hmm. my book mm -hmm. I, these are all you know bloggy unfinished memoirs as I I'm still learning, you know, sure. and I'm going to wrap them up. But you could do the man next Leonard Cohen, the man next door and diamond and you'd find, you know, some of my writing about him. Okay. And uh, that would be a place to start. And uh, can you get can you actually buy any of these books online? Yes, they're, they're, they 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 should be available at lulu.com most of them, but okay. I've got to get my act together. Okay. Uh, my publishing act together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. But yeah, well, you can get them. Get well, them. They sell. They, yeah. Fantastic. We'll put Thanks. the links in the in the episode notes. So excellent. I can yeah. send or I can send you, you know. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, send any links that you'd like like us to include. Well, great. All right. Well, so much fun to talk yeah. to you. Thanks was. so much, Anne. Thank you. We appreciate your time and your yes. energy. It was wonderful. And I'll let you know when this comes out and, and you can I'll send you the link and you can spread it wherever you want to. And well, let's excellent. do this again. I would love to. All right. I'll tell everyone. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. Right. Bye. Bye. Farewell. Bye now. Well, that was cool. It was That's great. Cool. To have my Leonard Cohen dream shattered. You always start rustling the I, mic once we start recording. I'm shocked that Anne is over six feet tall. I yeah. love it. The yeah. Tall Girls Club. That what was is, amazing. What is your official height? Five, it used to be 5'11". I think I've been demoted to 5'10 and three quarters. 
<laughs> I need it's I need that, to get an adjustment. It's that um, <laughs> you've been losing inflammation. That was a, a, a quarter inch of inflammation. <laughs> Heel <Maybe>. inflammation. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or head. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Your your ego is shrunk. So. Exactly. Maybe it was my hair that day it was shorter. I yes. don't know. Anyway, that was a delightful conversation. It was. Yeah. It was. It was so interesting, so intense talking about her childhood stuff. That was really, really intense. Yeah, I've heard her say in conversations because she's been asked before if she's ever explored this in therapy or hypnotherapy. And she's like, no, I'm fine. Like, I don't need yeah, to dig into that. I exactly. don't need to unearth the stuff. I I, I live a fairly functional life now. And yeah. I'm just going to stop while I'm ahead. Yeah, I've I've seen some pretty horrifying images, uh, photographs of experiments that they were doing with kids and lots of different situations. And, you know, it, it is horrifying for any child. Uh, I think the people that were feeding children from orphans into these hospitals is just unconscionable and really sad when it's someone from a military background. And I think there's probably, you know, we didn't go into the details, but I think there's probably more than one thing going on there. I think, yes, maybe there was some manipulation but also there was potentially some mind control happening with the parents. For sure. You know, so, you know, it becomes a chicken or the egg thing, like which came first? Was it that he, you know, and him being, you know, late coming back from leave, that could have been a manipulation to put him in that situation where yeah. he felt beholden, you know, so... It's all, you know, when, when you're talking about these people who are doing these types of experiments, you really can't put anything past them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're willing to strap children down and inject them with LSD, I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, what won't you do? Yeah, intense stuff. I can't even imagine. I mean, there's still as much as I dig into this stuff, and I think this is one of the reasons I keep going back to this subject is because there's still a part of me that doesn't accept it. It's not that I think that anybody is lying by any means. I totally think all of this stuff goes on, but on a gut level, on a like a really visceral level, I think I still haven't, like, I can't even go there. I can't even go through to a place where I, you know, what it must be like to be in, in a situation like that or to witness something like that or much less instigate something like that yeah i think part maybe part of the the uh benefit if there could be one of growing up in the circumstance that i grew up with the the parent that i grew up with was that this stuff was talked about from the time i was a child so you know it was my mom was talking about Operation Climax. My mom was talking about, you know, Disneyland and Disney World being used for experiments. You know, them, you know, these these uh, people, <laughs> however you want to label them, you know, putting smallpox and measles on door handles to see, again, to see how 
this would spread, you know, so it, it is not even slightly, um, outside of the realm of possibility, the level of torture and torment that, uh, our guests have talked about, you know, and expressed it is totally within the realm of possibility that these things have happened and are still happening and happen with, uh, you know, people who are coming across the board illegally, people who have their children taken away from them and then put into foster care. So, you know, I think that's the thing that is so upsetting is to think that the government, their official claim is that MK Ultra, that program has stopped. Uh, that that iteration of the program may have yeah. stopped, but they're calling it something else now. They're calling it COVID. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but there were a lot of things before COVID that, that have been going on but for all, decades. All of this is a chain reaction, and this... Yeah. Current situation has been set up in stages and it's been unfolding for decades. Yeah. So that's why it was it went for the most part without a hitch and was uh, inculcated by the normal member of the population and then they were turned into the perpetuators of the of the psyop. Um, right. Which well, that was the ingenious part. What I what I have been I think where you have expressed some resistance and where I have landed because it's been something that has been ingrained in my brain since I was a little girl is that media across the board, regardless of the type of media, has some form of mind control embedded in it. And I don't, I don't need to convince anyone of that. That's just a fact and I think that there's different reasons that that is happening. And what Anne is just reinforcing is that these are experiments. And part of an experiment is doing something and then, you know, keeping track of the effect of that thing. You don't think that I know that about media? Have you seen the bumper stickers on my van? Yes, but you also, you hold certain things dear to you. You're painting with a broad brush. I can hold both of those things at the same time in my realizing that that happens and knowing what my personal experience of it is, that you don't understand that I can separate those two things. I do, but I also think that those things have, uh, like that music, for example, can have uh, mind control elements and aspects to it. And I think that's one thing that Anne was talking about is that Leonard Cohen's music has aspects of mind control in it. And a lot of it can be dark imagery. And the idea is not to necessarily make people do something. It's to subconsciously uh, maybe set a tone for a generation of people. And I think that it works. I mean, that's my my vote. Where's the ballot place? <laughs> <laughs> you 
Anyway, hopefully we will have Anne on again. And yes. I was I was actually just going to say I was going to ask you about Leonard Cohen, but let's save that for another show since we're already over halfway through this show and I knew there was a lot of Leonard Cohen information. Cohen. Um but I'm glad we did. Um Yeah. And there's always more to discuss, as she alluded to towards yeah. the end of the conversation. Absolutely. But it was great. I, As I said, too, in the conversation, I first heard her on Jason's show, The Liminalist, Jason Horsley, who's going to be on in, I believe, September. Um, yeah, and I, it's one of those things where I always, I don't like sacred cows. I always want to, um, I'm always up for... Um, What's the word I'm trying to look for? Killing my idols. Uh, that would be the drastic way of putting it. Um, but cutting situations down to size, even if it's something that's unpleasant for me because I hold it dear. And the Leonard Cohen situation was one of those because I hold his music, at least the four, first four albums, very dear to my heart. Um, when I first heard them in my 20s, I really gravitated towards the lyrics. They were almost biblical in the in the weightiness that they had and the way that they were sung, and especially his first album. Um, there's just something about it that has a very autumn feel to it, to me. Um, and something dark, something subtly dark. Uh, but I was dark back then. I still have dark aspects of myself, so I sort of gravitate towards things like that. But, you know, knowing this stuff and listening to his lyrics, it makes a lot of things that I didn't really, didn't really pick up on at the time make sense. Like he's talking about a lot of oblique subject matter that don't seem to have anything to do with a love song, but in the greater scheme of things, yeah, okay. I see what he probably meant by that now. So yeah, it's very interesting. So Again, I will still listen to Leonard Cohen albums. I listen to some tonight. We listen to some tonight. Um, and I will listen to him again. Uh, I just think it's a, an interesting layer. On top of that, I don't feel like all of a sudden I'm going to be mind-controlled into some doing something that I wouldn't do ordinarily. And I'd like to think I'm a pretty sophisticated person, Um so that's why I don't fear listening to Led Zeppelin, because I can still... That gives me a vibe that I had when I was a kid, and I just tap into that feeling. I don't necessarily, like, have I lived any of Led Zeppelin's lyrics? No. Are they even livable by a mortal human being? Probably not. But I relate it to a vibe that I had when I was growing up, and that's what I tap into. I'm not looking for social cues or learning how to behave in a certain way. Right, or, right. But it's easy. We're going to get into this conversation. No, it's again. easy to say that. I think that's where where you're missing the point. It, from my perspective, I think you're missing the point. I think that's where you're missing the point. From my perspective, is that you are denying that mind control exists by saying that you are uh, connecting that music to a certain. Uh, time period in your life. So maybe now as an adult, you're not um, as influenced by that. But as a child, this is why they use children in these experiments, because children are so porous and such such sponges. They're so open that you can play 
anything and a child a child will absorb that piece of information and you know it's it's like the social contagion of uh gender dysphoria now it's like the the social contagion of um any kind of mass behavior that people get involved in so i'm just saying it's important to be able to examine those things. Of course, and I do. I, God, well, I mean, you know me. You live with me. You know that I'm a self-reflective uh, uh, analyzer of every fucking thing. Except for Led Zeppelin. <laughs> no, it just doesn't keep me from listening to them. Like, I, I, if I were tempted to be mind-controlled by something, it would be about <laughs> songs. I'm not even about ready to say something funny. No, I was just, I was thinking something funny. I oh, was okay. thinking about butterscotch chips. <laughs> non sequitur. Songs about cookies. <laughs> no, songs about relationships. Uh, serious songs about relationships. I think Air Supply would have been more mind control to me than Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin were fucking comic books. Like, that's like saying I'm being mind controlled by Spider-Man or something like that. I, I don't. I don't see the connection at all. I never, that was an unreal world of fantasy that I used to escape right. into. Right. Um, it, I, I would be more apt to have taken clues from England Dan and John Ford Coley songs. Than, right. But they're now putting uh, like the uh, trans fl- flag in Spider-Man uh, show, like in Spider-Man movies, but subliminally they're putting it like in the background where it's not something that your brain, your brain is absorbing that information, but your, your, uh, consciousness isn't aware of it. Oh, my consciousness is aware of everything. Nothing slips past this filter. That's because that's, (laughs) that's the rules that I set for everything that goes into this mind. I'm a discerning, a discerning, multidimensional, sentient being. <laughs> Can't even continue that line, that description, uh, without cracking up because I can't think of what I'm really trying to get at. I just think I I understand it, so I'm less susceptible to it. So maybe I'll discover different later on down the line. But right now, I think I'm savvy. Uh, okay. Is there anything else that we need to cover about this, um, great conversation that we just had or the subject matter involved? I think we did it justice. Cool. Hopefully people won't have to hear us continue that discussion many more times. Why That's, not? I'm I'm sure it's a discussion many people are having. Perhaps, lots of yeah. lots of people are trying to we are in an age right now where there is a lot of mind control happening. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been going on forever, but right. it's very more sophisticated now than it's yeah. ever been before. Yeah. I I wish I could remember exactly verbatim what Frank Jacob said during our interview, but he said something like, "You know, I watch that, sh- I listen to that stuff, or whatever." Like, it is, I don't, I I don't remember. I don't want to even try and and remember what he said and put words in his mouth, but it was to the effect that. I can sort that shit out and I'm a grown up. I can make my own, come to my own conclusions about it, you know? So anyway, I swear that's all we're going to say about it (laughs) this time. Stay tuned next week for anyway. All righty. 
Um, if you have guest suggestions, uh, recipes, ideas for what? I do have to say, and we and I have said this before in other conversations mm-hmm. with you on the show and outside of the show, that when my mother was having a nervous breakdown, she was losing her shit, and we were talking about it, the the subject of media came up mm-hmm. and mind control. She said, you shouldn't watch TV. You shouldn't listen to popular music. That stuff is mind control. And I said to her at that point, and I still believe this, I said, Mother, I am strong enough and my brain is strong enough to be able to observe that stuff and not be mind controlled by it. So I'm just putting that out there that I agree with those sentiments. Do I think everyone has that ability to discern? Absolutely not. I'm not talking about everyone. Neither am I. Do I think everyone has the ability? Absolutely not. Do I think the methods are more sophisticated than they were in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even the 2000s now? Absolutely. I think there's I think there's more mechanisms to control mind now using EMFs, using cell phones, 5G, mm-hmm. the jab, I think there's lots of different ways to do that. Um, So I just have to end on that note. Or I forgot the list of why anybody would want to contact us. Anyway. Because they love us. Okay. Or because you love us. Um, The Melt podcast at ProtonMail.com. And keep those emails flying to hunter-muse at protonmail.com. Um, and we are in the midst of uploading stuff to... Locals. Locals, yes. Um, because and YouTube I, sucks. No, because we'll probably get kicked off Patreon. Oh. YouTube does suck. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is a Patreon substitute, not a YouTube substitute. Yeah. Rumble would be the YouTube substitute. Yeah. I would urge you all to go to Rumble. Let's make Rumble a better YouTube. Yeah. Uh, because we are, they're picking away bit by bit at us again uh, for episodes that have been out for two years. Yeah. So weird. It's bullshit. Weird. Um, YouTube sucks. Yeah. Please go to Rumble. We're also l- uploading stuff to Odyssey. I haven't included that link on the, our list of links yet because I haven't gotten them all uploaded yet. But so, yeah, stay tuned. Thank you all for your support. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you got something positive off of this. And, uh, yeah, again, fantastic things coming. Two fantastic interviews are later on this week. So I yep. hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoy what's to come. We are doing the interviews Later on this week, but the yes. the episodes won't be out for a minute. Yeah. So indeed. Keep keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on with us. Until next time. Fare thee well. To hear the full length version of this episode, 
get access to exclusive and early episodes, and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month, just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.